hey everyone, I'm so excited to come out to the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. It's going to be a blast. Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee. I'm going to be giving a presentation called Making the Case Against Cancel Culture, where I talk about how we write comedy and how Christians need to use art and writing and all of that wonderful stuff to fight against cancel culture and how we have to take a bold stand for the truth using the creative talents that God has given us. It's going to be a great time, and I'm so excited to come out and see everybody, meet everybody, and, uh, and talk a little bit about how we write satire and use that to communicate God's truth. You can meet and hear Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call 618-223-8385. Making the Case, June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. We suffer from this age of safetyism. We are caught up in a culture that idolizes being safe at all costs. And and with that comes a selfishness. The left has essentially declared that only a wanted child is an image of dei child. Only a wanted child is a child that's made in the image of God. And, And if you're not desired, then you don't have any intrinsic value. And to say that whatever the major total obstacle is that they're facing, whatever hardship To say that God has nothing to do with it then sets sin or this fallen world as though it were its own God. It's absolutely true that the Bible norms the church's creeds, but these summaries of faith tell us precisely what the church believes the Bible is saying. Amateur home improvers in Italy love issues, etc. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is standing at the Areopagus in Athens. And after having toured the place, he addresses some of those who are around him. And he says, I perceive that you are in many ways very religious. Well, if it's true for Paul in that city of Athens there in that ancient world, it's true still today. The earth is a very religious place now. How do we evaluate the various religious claims? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Thursday afternoon, the 9th of February. Mark Lanier is going to join us. He has written a new book called Religions on Trial. A lawyer examines Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and more. We'll cross-examine some world religions. We'll spend some time with you, our listener, via our listener email, talkback at issuesetc.org. And the issues, etc. Comment line 618-223-8382. Then Dr. John Bombaro joins us. He's authored a recent column titled True Tolerance. We'll discuss the new tolerance ethic. Mark Lanier is founder of the Lanier Law Firm and the Christian Trial Lawyers Association. He's twice been named as the National Trial Lawyers Association Trial Lawyer of the Year, and he is author of a new book, Religions on Trial. Mark, welcome. Such a joy to be on this show, Todd. Thank you for the chance. What do we need to know about the American trial system to understand your legal examination of the claims of world religions? Well, the human civilization has spent thousands and thousands of years to try to figure out how to find truth. And the American judicial system is supposedly the pinnacle of our best understanding of that. It's held up exemplary throughout the world and throughout history. 
for its ability to find truth. We believe in the American trial system and its effectiveness. We believe in it enough to where we'll put people to death under the death penalty because we have found truth in a courtroom. We'll bankrupt corporations. We'll decide who gets custody of a child. The American judicial system is the foundation of justice in America, and it's based upon truth. What are the elements of that system that an attorney and a judge, and in some cases a jury, brings to bear upon truth claims or trying to ferret out the truth? Well, there are a number of different safeguards built in that will be there to try and buttress the idea that you're coming up with a fair conclusion and a truthful conclusion. And among those safeguards, which I think are relevant to our discussion, is number one, that you need to have an unbiased judge or jury. That means that they've got to be able to set aside any bias or sympathy or prejudice. And so one of the pleas that I make within the book, for example, or my whole series of cases on trial, is that people would set aside their predilection, what they're walking in already believing, and try as best as they can to make an analysis based only on the evidence. And then a second bulwark to the system is the idea that evidence needs to be adjudged by certain criteria. You don't want junk science in a courtroom. You've got a judge who's a gatekeeper who's going to say, okay, here are the steps by which we measure whether or not our analysis is adequate and good. And so that helps us form good opinions and and make good judgments on what's true. What are the Bradford Hill criteria and how do they apply to religious claims? Well, Bradford Hill criteria are a marvelous example of what I'm talking about when I say that judges are gatekeepers for the evidence. Let me give you an example. I tried the nation's big opioid case recently. And in that opioid case, I had to put on a witness that said that the bad acts by the defendants had caused the opioid epidemic in these two Ohio counties. Now, I couldn't just put an expert on the stand and say, did it? I have to, under the law, prove up the qualifications behind that opinion. Those are called Bradford Hill criteria after Sir Bradford Hill, who was an epidemiologist of sorts in England, and actually was the guy who linked up cigarette smoking to cancer, side note. Anyway, you put those criteria out there to assess whether or not the evidence is adequate. And what I've done is I've said, when we're trying to assess whether or not a religious or a faith system is true, we need a similar set of criteria, something to analyze that system by. And I propose six questions that I use to analyze any religious system, six foundations of truth. What are those six foundations of truth? Well, those are the questions that I think are most useful. The first one is, is whether or not the faith system, the belief system, is consistent with the world as we know the world. In other words, I can't say that the moon is made of cheese and do that with credibility. I've got to have a system that is consistent with how we see the world. The second question is, is it consistent with how I am? I'm not going to buy into a belief system that says every human being is innately good and wonderful and without problems, because I personally know that I would love to be good and I pursue the good, 
but I wouldn't have these nagging extra 15 pounds on me if I didn't have self-control issues when it comes to food, or I wouldn't have times where when I'm short of sleep, I'm not as patient as I should be, or whatever it may be. Your system needs to be consistent with what we know about ourselves. And then that self-consistency needs to also be consistent with the global view, the world view that you've got. For example, one of my daughters decided for a couple of years to be a vegetarian because she thought that animals were being mistreated when they were being butchered for sale for meat. And one day, after a year or so of this, uh, we were at a breakfast buffet. She came to the table and she had bacon on her plate. And I said, Gracie, I thought you were a vegetarian. She said, I am. She said, I said, I thought this was because animals are being mistreated. She said, it is. I said, but you've got bacon on your plate. She said, well, Dad, nobody's a vegetarian when there's bacon. It's a schmaltzy example, but it underscores the idea that my view for the world and my view for me need to be in concert. And then the last couple of questions I ask is whether or not the faith system is livable. It's one of my big problems with Buddhism. I don't think Buddhism ultimately is a livable faith system as it's set out with Buddha's Four Noble Truths. I ask myself next, does it answer life's big questions? Why there's right and wrong? What are we doing here? What's this nagging sense we have that we're made for more in life? And then last and finally, does it make for good people and good societies? Is it a, a system that promotes corporate good as opposed to destroying it. So those are the criteria that I use to evaluate religious claims. What are the mystical faiths? How does that category function? Well, I consider mystical faiths to be those like Hinduism and Buddhism. There are lots of subdivisions of that. You've got Zen Buddhism. Hinduism itself is practically a buffet where you can pick and choose almost anything you want to believe and just call yourself a Hindu. And so... These are the faiths that don't deal as much with the idea of being objectively true. They're more subjectively how you feel and approach, and and it's a much more mystical walk where you're not trying to iron out these Western logical answers, per se. You're much more interested in the experience of trying to uh, uh, walk and grow through this life into what the next life may be for you. How does Hinduism stand up to a lawyer's examination? Well, I have trouble with Hinduism because Hinduism is a, like I said before, in the sense of a buffet, you can be a Hindu and believe that there are thousands of gods. You can be a Hindu and believe there's a thousand or a hundred or 50 or 10 or 3 or 1, you can be a Hindu and not believe in gods at all. And the premise behind Hinduism is that we all have a road that we walk, and the roads all can lead to the same place. And I drive. I know roads don't all lead to the same place. I live in Houston, Texas. If I want to go to Los Angeles, I have to take I-10 or some other highway that goes west. I can't take I-45. That just is going to take me to Canada. All roads don't lead to the same place. And Hinduism doesn't account for that. The Hinduism is just kind of like, yeah, whatever you want to believe, you can believe. What claims does Buddhism make that require examination? Well, Buddhism, like Hinduism, we have to be careful about overgeneralizing. 
because you can alter almost anything that I say, and you can say, well, I'm not that kind of a Buddhist, or I'm not that kind of a Hindu. But the Four Noble Truths that Buddha set out, which I use as the core criteria of what makes someone a Buddhist, whether they admit it or not, if they're going to follow Buddha and his Four Noble Truths, they're going to flee from suffering by not having desires or wants. And that may sound noble, and it's labeled a noble truth, and there's certainly an appeal to the aesthetic, to denying the pleasures of life. But I live in a world where I see evil in the courtroom all the time. I live in a world where Larry Nasser can be the gymnast coach, and he can sexually molest and abuse countless young women who are trying to fulfill a gymnastic career. I live in a world where there are people who have no trouble being mass murderers and finally getting caught. And because I live in that world, I don't think that suffering is something that we eliminate simply by eliminating desire, the way Buddha said. I think that suffering is something we need to to engage in with war. And we need to try and not just say, well, hey, I'm sorry you were sexually molested, but if you don't think about it and care about it, then you can get over the trauma and life will go on. No, the sexual molester needs to be held accountable, needs to be caught, needs to be punished. Women need to be vindicated for coming forward. And there's just a huge difference where the rubber meets the road. And I don't think Buddhism makes for the kind of society we want. What are the historical faiths? Well, the ones that I examine in this book are Islam, Judaism, and Mormonism. There are lots of other historical faiths, including normative Christianity, which I examined in Volume 1 of the trilogy, Christianity on Trial. But these historical faiths are faiths that are rooted in historical events that are claiming these events happened. And if these events did happen as recorded, then there's validity for the faith. If these events did not happen as recorded, then the faith itself is destined for the dust heap because it can't be valid. The claims have to be rooted in that history. How would you describe the principles of religious Judaism? Well, religious Judaism, again, is one where there's going to be a lot of flexibility depending upon who it is that you're talking to. Some people will believe one thing, some believe another. You've got Orthodox Jews, you've got conservative Jews, you've got Reformed Jews, you've got uh, all sorts of different levels of Judaism, you've got Messianic Jews. But what I dealt with is I looked at one of the greatest Jewish scholars in our last two millennia, was a guy named Moses Maimonides, and he lived in the 1100s, I think he may have died like 1204 or something like that. But Maimonides published 13 principles of Jewish faith. And so I use those principles to examine Judaism because they seem like a good objective faith. And it's interesting, as I read those, I agree with almost all of them. The only exceptions I drew were the exceptions that say that Yeshua, Jesus, is not the Mashiach, is not the Messiah. But the whole principle of The rest of them make a lot of sense under all the criteria. The idea that there's a creator that exists within himself who caused everything to come into existence, I have no trouble with that. I believe that's true. The idea that there's a unity of God, that God is one, 
I think that's also right, that God is spirit and not flesh. I think that's certainly true as well. That's the miracle of the Incarnation. The idea that God is primordial, meaning that nothing existed before Him, again, that's one that makes sense to me. The idea that God alone is worthy of worship, that is a, a Christian thought just as much as a Jewish thought, and it's one that makes sense. The idea that there's prophecy, that God has spoken to humanity through the prophets, again, I think that makes sense. The idea that Moses uh, uh, is the father of all the prophets and everybody else is a lesser status, I've got a little bit of a problem there because Moses himself, on examination, said that there would be another one who would come who would be like him, and that God spoke to him, God led him, God, you know, he had that direct line. Principle number eight is that the Torah is from heaven that we've received it properly from God. The Torah, of course, are those first five books of the law, of the Old Testament. We would call them Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, some Jews believe in an oral Torah as well. I don't think that the oral Torah has uh, the historical veracity of the written one. But these are all principles that make a lot of sense to me with the way I understand the world and the criteria that I look at. The only ones that, that I have a problem with are the ones that are still looking for a Messiah to come. I think it's principle number 12 says that the Messiah is still to come, and I believe that the Messiah has come. Mark Lanier is our guest. He's author of Religions on Trial. A lawyer examines Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and more. We'll turn to Islam and see how it stands up to cross-examination next. This is Molly Hemingway of The Federalist. Join me, my husband Mark of Real Clear Investigations, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod President Matt Harrison, and others for the 2023 Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th, and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more at issuesetc.org. Making the Case, June 16th and 17th in Chicago. Issuesetc.org. Making Disciples for Life. Across the nation, students are back in school in over 1,800 schools serving children in early childhood through high school. Students are thriving in programs of excellence in a safe, caring Christian environment taught by dedicated teachers. To find a school in your community, visit lcms.org schools. Connect today for information about a Lutheran school for the children in your family at lcms.org schools. Defending the Faith, Teaching the Truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House. 
A charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. We're getting a cross-examination of world religions from attorney Mark Lanier. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Thanks to Wilfred in Moline, Illinois, Michelle in Dubuque, Iowa, David in Dearborn, Michigan for recently registering for the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. Making the Case is an opportunity for you to meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod President Matt Harrison, and San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordleone, and others. The premier conference for Christian laity is Friday, June 16th, and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, give us a call, 618-223-8385, or visit issuesetc.org. Making the case June 16th and 17th in River Forest, Illinois. Mark, how does Islam stand up to cross-examination? So Islam, like all these other faiths, have some inherent truth in them. And I don't want to sound like I'm bashing all of these religions, because you'll find elements of truth in almost all of them. God has prepared the human heart to receive the truth of Jesus. And that means that the human heart is tuned to receive truth. And so you'll find some elements of truth in almost all of these various religious expressions. It's just not a fullness of truth like we have in Christianity that explains the incarnation, that explains the crucifixion on behalf of our sins and the resurrection. And so that's what's missing. So if you look at Islam, Islam has some very key historical problems within the text of the Quran. And what a Muslim would tell you is, well, we think the text of the Quran is correct, and it's fixing the errors that had crept in to earlier prophetic scriptures. The problem with that is, we have an incredible set of ancient documents that confirm the veracity of ancient scripture. You look, for example, at the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Great Isaiah Scroll there that echoes what scholars would call the Masoretic text of Isaiah. And the Dead Sea Scrolls alone show great veracity behind the key historical elements. So if you look at the Muslim scriptures and you see that they're contrary to what established history can show us, then the entire Muslim faith crumbles, because the Muslim faith is built on the idea that not only is the Quran without flaw, but that every syllable, every vowel has never been corrupted, and that it's all as it originally was delivered to the Prophet Muhammad. And so once you find a problem with any of it, you've just sunk the entire boat. Nobody's going to be able to say, well, okay, somebody made a copying error a hundred years ago. Not at all. They think that it's still perfect and without any flaw at all. And so you're tied to the history that it presents. And when that history is shown to be wrong, you've just lost your faith. 
Let's talk about the claims of Mormonism, which are not unlike in some ways, in a modern-day sense, those of Islam. Yeah, that's true, because if you look at it, Todd, you've got modern Mormonism is this idea that grew out of the 1800s that Joseph Smith, up near uh, Rochester, New York, actually, it's Hill Cumorah outside Rochester, was revealed these buried plates, and he dug them up, and they gave an alternate history for North America that produced the idea that Jesus, while he was in that nether state of dead but not yet resurrected, that he came over to America and he preached, that the American Indians or Native Americans, I guess it's more politically correct, the Native Americans are the lost ten tribes of Israel. These types of things were in vogue to believe. You can read them in the newspapers of the 1800s when Joseph Smith comes out with this. It was a popular concept. But now we've reached a point where DNA tests show that the Native Americans aren't even remotely the lost ten tribes of Israel. Can't be, aren't, couldn't be, never have been. And so now you've got the Mormon Church rewriting portions of the Book of Mormon to try to edit some of this information out and try to, to alter what has already been there and try to recall all the older copies that state otherwise so that they can be destroyed. I'm sitting here saying, okay, in a trial with an unbiased jury, they're not going to buy that history. They're not going to buy that as being God's divine revelation, where it's so objectively wrong with what we can know fairly based on science and archaeology and and history. What is secular spiritualism, and how would you evaluate it? Secular spiritualism, I, I, I have a lot of friends who are secular spiritualists. These are my friends who say, we don't really believe in religion, but we do believe in, in spiritual things. We're spiritual people. Now, some of them will read horoscopes, convinced that the stars are going to tell them the answers to their pressing questions. Some of them just say, I'm just spiritual. You know, the, the, it was meant to be, is a favorite phrase of these people. And I say to them, I say, what do you mean it was meant to be? Well, I just feel like this is the way the universe had it designed. Who's the universe? Well, just that spiritual presence. What spiritual presence? Let's define it. Let's know what it is now, because you don't want to be religious, but if there's a spiritual presence, maybe you should be. So this secular spiritualism is the idea that people recognize the truth, that there is something spiritual in this life, but they're missing the rest of the truth, which they would categorize as religion, which explains what that spiritual reality really is. So uh, secular spiritualists are people who want to be spiritual, but abstain from religion. What is secular Christianity? It's the opposite, Todd. (laughs) In some ways, a secular Christian is someone who wants to be religious, but doesn't want to be spiritual. These are the people who want the judgment of God, but not the mercy of God. These are the people who want the rules of the road, but don't want to recognize that there's a greater rule of love that's got to be taken hand in hand with the others. If the secular spiritualist wants to be spiritual but not religious, I find the secular Christian to be religious but not spiritual. 
And in some ways, it's so dangerous because some of these are the most outspoken people on behalf of Christianity, and the world looks at them and says, if that's who Jesus is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And it's not that they don't have some truth to what they're saying, because the religious truth of Christianity is there. But if they're missing the Spirit of God, if they don't understand that to obey is better than sacrifice, that God's not looking just for the rules, He wants your heart, that God wants to see mercy and not just judgment, that God wants His people to be recognized by their love for each other and their unity, not their hatred and divisiveness. And the true Christian has got the greatest cause there is for trying to love their neighbor and trying to pray for those who persecute them and seek their best instead of seeing a religious system as a weapon to help them grab power or control or manipulate others. And so I deal with that at the end of the book. Make your closing argument then regarding Christianity and the other world religions. Well, we all want truth. We all want to know what is right, what's real, what is it that explains these big questions of life? What is it that gives meaning to life and purpose to life? Why do I feel like I'm made for more than this? Why do I think that there should be purpose? Why do I hate injustice? Why does it bother me when bad things happen to good people? Why is it that I think that there needs to be an accounting for the evil in this world? And yet I also understand there needs to be mercy for when I'm in those shoes of doing something wrong. What explains all of that? Well, I can go through each of these religious systems and I can show that they've got some of the explanation but they fall woefully short at the end. And the only system that I have found that explains to me why things are the way they are is the idea that is given in the Jewish and Christian scriptures. And that is that there exists a God who is personal. He's not a supercomputer. He's, he's personal. He's infinite without boundaries. And he is moral. And by that, I mean he's got ethics built into the fabric of who he is. This God made humanity to be in a relationship with him. So he hardwired us that while we're not infinite, we're finite, we are still personal, and we are also moral. But to walk with him means to walk in his character and his morality, and humanity chose to walk on their own and define their own morality. That's the fall. And so all of humanity is seeking redemption, whether they realize it or not, because they were made to be in a relationship with the divine one. And the divine one is also a just being. So all the divine one can do is justify those properly with justice. He doesn't alter who he is and become an unjust God. And the only way he can justly forgive is by paying the price for those sins himself. And so he did so, and that was the incarnation that led to the crucifixion, and then God being God, the resurrection. And so this is the truth, that this is the way humanity can find meaning and purpose and know right from wrong and have destiny that affirms us in this life. And that truth's only found within Scripture. 
Mark Lanier is founder of the Lanier Law Firm and the Christian Trial Lawyers Association. He has twice been named as the National Trial Lawyers Association Trial Lawyer of the Year, and he's author of the new book, Religions on Trial, A Lawyer Examines Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and More. You can purchase this book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Mark, thanks. Todd, a pleasure. Take care. It's time for listener email on the other side of the break, along with the Issues Etc. comment line. We'll be talking about that large catechism edition that we discussed yesterday with Dr. Jordan Cooper. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start. The Foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes. Dedicated customer service and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. cph.org. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, President of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu